Hey, grab your Bibles, open them up, and we're going to be in uh, Hebrews chapter 9 as we continue to make our way through the book of Hebrews. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I just want to start by thanking you for all the mothers in the room today. God, what, a, what an incredible gift that you made up, that you thought up for there to be such a thing as a mother. And God, we're so thankful, not only for our mothers, but for how they exemplify so many attributes of you, Father. We're thankful, God, for the ministry and the labor that that our mothers put in to raise us, and, and especially those mothers that not only raised us, but discipled us. And thank you for that gift. And God, I also just want to stop and, and acknowledge and pray this morning for those in here that Mother's Day represents a very painful reality. Those in here that have lost children, miscarried, lost infants. Those in here that are not able to have children those in here that lost their mother, that they're not able to see their mother today. God, you love to work in those painful spaces and to bring comfort. So I just want to pray for them, and I want to pray for our moms. And God, as we open up Hebrews chapter 9, we pray you would meet us in the text. God, this isn't me speaking. This is me saying what you've already spoken. So we can have great confidence this morning as we just simply work through the passage that this is your word for us, that you have spoken, and it's our job to listen <clears throat> and to, to hear and to trust and to follow. So, Lord, meet us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Sin, uh, sin's foreign migration into humanity or in, into humans' existence, it, it, it broke humans on the inside and on the outside. So, Genesis 3, pretty important chapter in the Bible. Everything changed in Genesis 3. God made a good world. He said, behold, it is good. He put humans in this good world. He made them in his image in order to reflect his image and some of his attributes. And then Genesis 3, sin, like this foreign actor, this foreign agent, came in and it brought death and it brought brokenness and it brought pain and it brought sorrow. And everything after Genesis 3 is experienced through this filter of sin and brokenness. And you, human being, you're, you're broken spiritually and physically. Your, your brokenness is internal and it's external. Anybody feel that this morning when they got out of bed? Yeah? Okay. Um, and, and sometimes we don't always do the best job of discerning which is which. Sometimes we assume that the things we feel internally can be fixed externally. And we're, we're very guilty of this. In fact, there's an entire economy built around this. If I could just fix this external thing, it would actually fix the internal thing. Something really happened in Genesis 3 um, that, that was profound, if you guys remember. Um, when Adam and Eve sinned, their new reality became a reality of what? Shame. God shows up to interact with them like he had so many times before. And when he shows up, Adam is hiding. 
Why is he hiding? Because he is, well, he now sees that he's naked. There's something about his physicality, there's something about him physically that he is now ashamed of and that he hides himself. He tries to cover himself because sin has exposed um, or, or brought into this, this place of, of feeling exposed and feeling as though he's lacking something. So God calls to Adam in the garden and Adam's hiding and, and then when they finally interact, God says, who told you that you were naked? Who, who put this shame in you? What is this new shame reality that the humans now carry? And then God was kind. He went and he made actually the first sacrifice in the Bible. Do you remember that? God himself went and he took two animals and he killed the animals in order to make coverings for Adam and Eve, to make temporary covering for their shame. And so don't miss the picture. There's blood. There's life that has been taken in order to cover the death that sin has brought. But was the covering of the animal skins, was it sufficient for this deep brokenness that Adam and Eve were now experiencing in their new human reality? It was temporary. It wasn't, it wasn't enough. And this is what we do. This is what we've been doing ever since. We, we feel our internal brokenness, and we try to cover it with external remedies. So many people in our world are caught up in this. Everyone from, from the person who is addicted to exercise to the point where they're taking steroids or doing something unhealthy because they, they feel as though their body should be something that it's not. Or to, to the person that's addicted to simply portraying an image of success, who's working an ungodly amount of hours and investing themselves in unhealthy ways because they're, they're trying to make their external look like something, to the person who is uh, struggling with anorexia or bulimia, who says, I, I need to be more thin, I can't be thin enough, what is the problem there? The problem is they're trying to fix what's inside by, what's, by, by, by affecting what's outside. To the, the person who's, who's maybe thinking, maybe I'm the wrong gender, maybe I'm stuck in the wrong body, maybe I just need to alter my body somehow, maybe that's somehow that's going to fix me. To the person who is who is even just walking in tons and tons of, of religious works, hoping maybe if I do enough religious stuff, people will see me a certain way. To the people spending money on cosmetic surgeries that aren't needed, I want you to see all of these things I've listed, all of this stuff, it's a Genesis 3 reality. It's I feel shame about how I look, how I'm perceived, about my externality. My internality is not aligned with my externality. And I need to change something. But the problem is not the external, is it? It's something within. It's something deeper. And this is what our text is going to remind us of this morning. We don't just need covering, although we do, but we need much more than that. We don't just need acceptance, although we do, but we need much more than acceptance. We need something internal. We need a better thing to happen, a deeper thing to happen within us. So the book of Hebrews, let me just kind of remind you again of what's happening in the book of Hebrews. The author is writing to a group of Jewish Christians, ethnically Jewish Christians, who uh, spent the majority probably of their life practicing Judaism. And you might say, what is Judaism? Well, really Judaism, by the way we define it, was the Old Testament. Except the Old Testament law had become something much more than God ever intended for it to be. And that's kind of what we do as humans. We over-engineer, don't we? We take something that God engineered and we say, you know, I think I can make that better. 
And so that's what the, 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 the religious people of the day did. They, they over-engineered God's law, the law that was simply meant to show their need for grace. They came in and they added all kinds of extra laws and all kinds of extra rituals. And the Jews really liked their religion. And I need you to understand that when Jesus came onto the scene and he introduced this new covenant, it was a tectonic shift for the Jews. It wasn't just like a little tweak, a little nip, a little tuck, a little change here of Judaism. It was an entirely new reality. So much so that Jews were having sort of a, a, a conflict, an identity crisis many times, trying to figure out how do we reconcile this old religious system in which we go to the temple and we see the priest and we enter the synagogue and we read the law and we celebrate the feast days and we do all of these things. How do I reconcile that with this new covenant reality that Jesus has introduced? The two seemed to be incompatible because they were. And the Jews, who were largely ostracized from, uh, the Christian Jews, I should say, were largely ostracized from Jew, the, their, their Jewish families and friends because of their Christian walk, were starting to go, maybe we, should, maybe we should go back to some of the old ways of Judaism. It's safe to say maybe they were even thinking, maybe we should try to combine the two. Maybe there's a both and here. And so they're drifting. They're drifting from Jesus and his new covenant as being the all-sufficient and superior way to salvation and to God. And they're saying, maybe we need to go back to Judaism. And so the author of Hebrews is waving his arms pastorally, and he's saying, don't go back. Don't drift from Jesus. Anchor yourself to Christ. And in order to do that, he's showing logically for us why Jesus and his new covenant and his high priestly work is so superior in every way to anything that the old covenant could accomplish. So you might notice, by the way, as we go through this, Sam, it feels like you're preaching the same sermon every week, okay? And that's because the text is really saying the same thing every week. Now, one of our convictions here is that the majority of the time we do biblical exposition, which means we work through a book of the Bible. And the reason we do that is exactly because of what I just said. The Bible dictates what gets said more than one time, right? If it was up to me, I would just talk about all the topics I want to talk about all the time, all the things that are interesting, all the things that are going to perk your interest. But rather, when we teach through a book of the Bible, we let the text dictate the terms. We let the text tell us what we should think about more than just one week. And guess what the Bible talks about a lot? The gospel, over and over and over and over again. So there's a sense in which the material we're going to engage with this morning might sound a lot like the material we looked at last week and the week before. And I think that's God through his spirit-inspired book saying, think about this a lot. Don't just think about it once and move on. And a lot of people think about salvation and the gospel and, and the blood of Christ and the cross. They think, yeah, that's, that's foundational stuff. We need to move on now to more interesting things. Okay, We don't believe that here at Philippi. We believe the gospel is the center of all the Christian life. It's not only the thing we get saved by, it's the thing we mature by. Amen? So we're going to keep talking about this thing because that's what the text keeps talking about. So let's dive right in. We're going to pick up in verse 11, even though we already looked at 11 last week. I just want to get a running start because I want, I want to re-immerse you into the flow of the thought of the author. One of the things we need to do every time we approach a text each week is we need to approach it saying, what is the big thought here? What is the big picture here that's being said. So let's start in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, 
not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Now, these two verses, again, this is review, but they, I wanted you to see them again because they're a good synopsis of some of the big points that the author of Hebrews has been making time and time again. Let me just synthesize them down. He's been saying over and over again that Jesus is a better priest because Jesus comes from a better and more transcendent order than the tribe of Levi and the priestly line of Aaron. We've already looked at that. He's been saying that Jesus went into a more real temple, not one made by hands, but the real temple, which is the holy place of God in God's presence, in the real holy of holy of holies, in the real throne room of God. The author's been telling us that Jesus went into this real place. He didn't just go into a tent or into a temple made by hands. He went into a real space in order to make real and lasting atonement. He made a more full and more effectual sacrifice rather than the priest who would go in day after day, rather than the high priest who would go in year after year having to make sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Where is Jesus in this whole thing? He's sitting because it's done at the right hand of the Father. He's made a more full sacrifice. And as we'll see again in more detail, he's mediated or released or actuated a better covenant. Better than the old covenant. Better than the covenant of Moses. And that's what we're going to really focus on uh, a lot this morning. Verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of goats, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, this is review. We looked at this last week. The main reason I wanted to read this again is because it sets the tone, it sets the trajectory for what we're going to talk about this morning, which is the need for God to do an internal work in us rather than an external work, okay? God needs to do something deeper than just cover us. God needs to do something deeper than just bring a covering over us. He needs to purify our conscience, and now we get into the new content here, so, so tune in. In verse 15, therefore, he, being Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now, if you're anything like me, you read that, you're like, huh? I mean, you'd have to read that like 50 times to really think about what's being said. So I'm going to want to break it down a little bit. Let's spend about five minutes thinking about verse 15 because there's some serious, important stuff in here. First thing I want you to see in verse 15 is who all was forgiven because of the new covenant. It says, all those whose transgressions were committed under the first covenant. You know, Jesus didn't just die for the saints in the new covenant. Jesus died for all saints for all time. He died, I think, for Adam. He died for Abraham. He died for Moses. He died for David. He died for Ruth. He died for Boaz. He died for anyone, and we'll see this in Hebrews 11, anyone who had put their faith in Yahweh God. No one was ever saved by an animal sacrifice. Did you know that? Never. No one was ever saved because they made an animal sacrifice. People were saved because 
on credit, they put their faith in God, and God accredited that righteousness to them. It's, it's a famous way of saying it. Uh, you can think about it this way. Old Testament saints were saved on credit. New Testament saints are saved on debit. Okay, the promise was that God was going to send a sufficient sacrifice for all, all saints, Old Testament and New Testament. It's important that you see that. Now, I want you also to see in verse 15 that Jesus' blood didn't just make up for what was lacking in the Old Covenant. It also inaugurated a new covenant. So we think about the gospel, we think about the cross. It's not just that Jesus paid for our sins. That's part of the gospel. But it's not the totality of the gospel. It's part of it, but it's not all of it. What Jesus did on the cross was not just to pay for our sins. He released and started an entirely new covenant. An entirely new covenant. We've talked about this a little bit, and we're going to talk about it a little bit more. I want to stop a little bit. I want to stop for a minute. I want to review some terms. I want to review some things that, that, that we might just kind of assume um, are, are the problem. Um, not the problem. Sorry, I was thinking about the sound problem. I, I don't know why they came up. Um, try the game. Just bring the game way down until it goes away. Um, okay, let, let me just review some terms here. What is a covenant? Okay, what is a covenant? We've talked about this a little bit before. A covenant is a word that we don't use a lot unless you're going to a wedding or something like that. But a covenant is essentially a contract between two parties, okay? Contract between two parties, and, and each party is making some kind of a promise that that covenant is binding them to, okay? So we have many covenants in the Bible. We've talked about some of them before. Some covenants in the Bible are unilateral covenants, and some covenants in the Bible are bilateral covenants, okay? So just, just a quick reminder of what a covenant is. Now, what is a mediator? Because it says here that Jesus mediated a new covenant. A mediator is simply the facilitator of this new covenant. So in the old covenant, who was the mediator? Starts with the mo and ends with the is this. Jacob? <laughs> yeah. Moses. Moses mediated, he mediated the new covenant. So maybe kind of a similar illustration to this. I didn't really think about this until just now. Uh, is sometimes I do weddings. As a pastor, right? And, and what am I doing? I'm mediating a covenant. Two parties, each party making promises to one another. Sickness and death, okay? They having to hold. Um, so I'm, I'm mediating that covenant. Now, God's the one creating the marriage. I'm just the mediator between it. And so Moses, and we'll see this more in a minute, Moses mediated a covenant between God and, not individuals, between God and who? Israel. The old covenant is not a covenant between God and individuals. It's a covenant between a nation, God and Israel. And Moses mediated that covenant. Now, what makes the new covenant new? We need to ask that question. What makes the new covenant new? There's a few things. First of all, we have new parties involved. See, the old covenant was between God and Israel. Let's see if I can get you on this one. Who is the new covenant? Who are the two parties of the new covenant? God, the Father, and who? God the Son. You guys get an A. Good job. Yeah. The new covenant, you might say, oh, the new covenant is God making a covenant with me. Well, kind of. But actually, the new covenant is a covenant between God the Father and God the Son. Because if he made it with you, you'd screw it up. Yep. Right? Got an amen on that one. Actually, I got a yep, which is even better. I like that. Yep. Spoken like someone saved by grace. If God made a covenant with you, you would screw it up. So what did God do? God made a covenant with himself. 
And he said, the way that you're going to gain access to this covenant is through union with the other party, which is Jesus. You need to be brought into oneness with Jesus. We're going to see that more in a moment. Another thing that's different about the new covenant is we get new terms. Okay, new terms. If you remember the Mosaic covenant, there were terms to that covenant. God said, do what I say and I'll bless you. Don't do what I say and I'll curse you. Is that how the new covenant works? No, this is a covenant of grace. It's not about our works. Now, that doesn't mean we don't work as believers, but we don't earn as believers. It is accredited to us fully by grace through faith. Thank you, Martin Luther, for clarifying that. Okay, by grace, through faith, the second we put our trust in Christ, all righteousness is fully accredited into our account. So it's not a covenant where God says, hey, if you do enough right, I'll bless you. If you do enough bad, I might curse you. That's a totally different idea. And it's always, by the way, it's always been a covenant of grace. Because even Moses was still saved by grace through faith. But he was part of a nation that was in a covenant with God. Are you tracking with me? Is this making sense? Don't tell me if it's not. I don't want to know. <laughs> tell me when I get back from vacation. Okay. Something else new about the new covenant is there's a new entrance. And I kind of already said this. The way that you get into the covenant is not by being born as a Jew, like the Mosaic covenant. The way you get into the covenant is being born again. Okay? By being born again of the Spirit, by getting saved. So, that's just some review here. Now, here's the big point. The new covenant is not just about being saved from something. It's about being saved to something. Look at verse 15 again. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Now, we've unpacked those terms. Now, you know what they mean. A mediator of a new covenant so that, listen, those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. When we think about salvation, we think, sweet, I don't have to go to hell. And that's true. We think about salvation, we think, sweet. Hey, there's Sean. Hey, Sean. We love you. Hey, give it up for Sean. You thought you were going to get away with it, but yeah, still putting you in the limelight. Be sure and give that man a hug and pray for him um, as he moves to Texas. Okay, where was I? Um, squirrel. Anyways, so we think about salvation. We think, oh, yes, it's about forgiveness of sins, and it is. But it's about so much more than that. It's not just about Jesus saving you from something. It's about Jesus saving you to something as well. It's both and. Yes, Jesus has saved me by his blood from the righteous wrath of the Father, from eternal hell, from death, from judgment, all those things. And God has saved me through Jesus to, to what? To a promised eternal inheritance. That Christianese just goes right over our heads. Promised eternal inheritance? What does that mean? Let's think about it for a little while. Let's worship with our minds. Let's think about what that means. What does it mean that we've been saved to a promised eternal inheritance? It means God wants you to inherit his wealth. Did you know that? God wants you to inherit his wealth. And no, I don't mean you get to have a jet and, you know, like nothing but health, wealth, and prosperity in this life. That's not what I mean. God is filthy rich. And his riches are far beyond the kind of riches we think about in our kind of Western capitalistic brains, right? His riches are far more transcendent than that. And God wants to actually give us his wealth. He wants us to inherit it. It's something he's promised. So what is that inheritance? Let's think about it for a minute. It's a few things. 
First of all, and most importantly, God's inheritance is himself. It's himself. You know, there's nothing more powerful and more beautiful and more great and more glorious and more rich than the thing that created all power and all glory and all riches, right? I mean, we know that. God is not just glorious. He's the source of glory. God is not just beautiful. He's the source of beauty. He's the inventor of beauty. God didn't just make up joy. Listen, he is joy. God didn't just make up pleasure. Pleasure is from God, and it's found only in God. We experience a perverted, shadow-like version of joy in this life, even in sin. But true joy is found where? It's found in the presence of God. Because God himself is the center of the universe. There is nothing your heart will ever be more delighted in than God himself. God saved you for God. And his greatest inheritance for you is himself. We have to remember that. You know what Jesus said in John 17, 3? He's praying for the saints. He says, this is eternal life that we might know him. That we might know the Father. That's what you're going to spend eternal life doing. That's your inheritance. You get God. You get him. But that's not it. You also get God's place. You don't only get God himself. You get God's place. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare what? A place for you. We need a place. We desire a place. There's a lot of HGTV shows out there about preparing places, you know, Fixer Upper. We love shows and things about places. We love to go places. We love to own places. Why? Because God made us and designed us to want place. And in his kingdom, we will have a place. Right now, we don't have a place, do we? We're exiles. We're wandering in a world that is being ruled by the prince of the power of the air. That's why we feel uncomfortable here. But what is God doing? He's preparing for us a place, and it's your inheritance. He said he's making rooms. Lots of rooms, okay? There's a place. You read Revelation 21, it's, it's, it's about a place. God's making a new heavens and a new earth, new Jerusalem. These are places. We get to inhabit God's place with God's presence there with us. We inherit also, we inherit God's name. We inherit God's name. You know, some of you guys were um, orphans, foster kids, I know many people in this church that, that, that didn't have parents. And somebody adopted you. And when they adopted you, they gave you their name. And all I did, they gave you their name. They gave you the riches of the family that you were adopted into. We were orphans in this world. And God adopted us. He gave us his name. He made us his family. It's incredible. He gave us part of our inheritance is his, is his internal purpose. He's given us something to do. I mean, these are basic human things, right? We want to be accepted. We want to be loved. We want to have a place. We want to have a purpose. All of that is the inheritance that God has for us. And listen, this might blow your mind. Not only do you have a purpose now, you're going to have a purpose in the fully realized kingdom in the future. You're going to do stuff. You're not just going to sit on a cloud playing a harp. Spoiler alert. Okay? You're going to do all the things you love to do, only in a fully perfect and redeemed world. You're going to explore. You're going to work. You know, work came before the fall. Did you know that? Work wasn't part of the fall. The fall affected work. I think we're going to work in our forever place. 
with God. I think we're going to create, we're going to have communion, we're going to have community, we're going we're to do all kinds of cool things, and we're going to have purpose, and it's all going to be to glorify God, because God is the center of all things. This is all our inheritance. And what do we learn about this inheritance in the New Testament? Well, we learn that in 1 Peter 1, 4, that it cannot be defiled. So everybody just do this for just you needed that, right? It's like group therapy right now. <laughs> Why can we do that? Why can we take a deep breath right now? Because I know you're stressed. You're stressed about your body, your physical health. You're stressed about your money. You're stressed about relational situations. You're stressed about your job. You're stressed about everything. There's so many things you could be stressed about. You're stressed about social situations. You're stressed about all kinds of things. You're stressed because you forgot to get your mom a card today. You're stressed, okay? But listen, take a deep breath because your internal inheritance cannot be defiled. It's, it's yours. And Ephesians 1 tells us it's already ours. It's already ours. We're not just waiting to go get it. It's already ours. We just haven't fully realized it yet. Ephesians 1.13 says that, our, that the Spirit of God is the earnest or the down payment for what God is going to do in the future. So our inherit, the, the, the Holy Spirit is the first installment in our inheritance. What does that mean? You guys have experienced the joy of the fruit of the Spirit? You ever experienced love? That's a down payment. That's a sign. That's, a, that's, a, that's an earnest that's going to show the full, more, more full realization of love that's going to come later. Joy? You guys ever experienced joy? Does anyone like joy? Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is a sign of what kind of existence we have to look forward to. When God deposited the Holy Spirit into your account, he said, there's more coming. This is just a deposit. Recently, my wife and I set up a, a savings account at a different bank, and, and they want to verify to do an account transfer. You know, you really, like, they have to verify that this right routing number and account. So they're like, we're going to make two small deposits in your account, like three cents and ten cents. Then you got to verify that you know how much that amount is. Anyone ever done that? Am I the only one? Okay, three cents, ten cents. That's pretty much the Holy Spirit that's filling you right now. That's all it is compared to the millions and billions of the riches of the Holy Spirit that is to come. God just deposited a little bit into your account just so you can get a taste of just how rich he really is. We have so much hope. And so read 15 again with all that in mind. Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal, or promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first isn't that good news? Cool. You can get Hebrews uh, 9.15 tattooed on you now because it's cool. So some of you will probably will actually do that. Um, why not? I want you to see one more thing in verse 15. Who is this applied to? Who is this applied to? One word, called. Those who are called. Now, you should ask immediately, well, who's called? Okay. Romans 8 tells us. Let me read it. Romans 8.28. It says, we know that for those who love God, note that, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What I want you to see here is that, that Paul links those two things together in that one means the other and the other means the other. I made that really confusing. What, what it means is, what does it mean to be called? It means to love God. What does it mean to love God? It means to be called. So how do I know if I'm called? Very simple. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. They follow me. 
This is how I know who my sheep are, Jesus said, because they do what I say. They follow me. They love me. They worship me. So the called are those who love God, and those who love God are the called. But the beauty of that is you didn't find God. He found you. You You didn't just figure it out on your own. He came and he called you. He called you by name. He chose you before the foundations of the earth. We should rejoice in that. So my question, just by way of application here, do you love God? Praise God. Then you're called. And if you're called, then the rest of Romans 8 applies to you. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Listen, this is called the golden chain. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. So do you love Jesus? then you're called. And if you're called, then you've been predestined. And if you've been predestined, then you've been chosen. If you've been chosen, then you've been justified. And if you've been justified, then you will be glorified. You see how they're all chained together? Why does that matter, Sam? It matters because we need that confidence. We need that confidence to know that God saved me and God's going to save me and God's saving me. God saved me. God's saving me. God's going to save me. And if God saved me, then he's going to save me. Am I making any sense? If he saved me, he's going to save me. And if he's going to save me, he's saving me because he's a saving God. Okay, moving on. Verse 16. For where a will is involved, now that's that's the word will meaning or referring to some some kind of a a stated desire of where you want your riches to go when you pass or your, your, your property to go when you pass. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it, must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So here's what the author's doing here. He's using an everyday example that everybody would be accustomed to, and that is a human will, meaning a, a stated document that says, when I die, this is what goes where. Okay? Um, you know, a lot of us have done that. Okay, we've, we've written down, if, if I should perish, here's where this goes and here's where that goes. And so what he's saying is God has a will. And that will has been actualized because there's been a death. Whose death? Jesus. Because Jesus has died, the will of God has been released and accomplished. So we should stop at this point and we should ask the question, well, what is the will of God? What is the will? What's the inheritance? What, what is it that he wants us to have? Flip over really quick to Ephesians 1, verse 3. Ephesians 1, verse 3. This has been referred to as the Swiss Alps of the Bibles, some of the most rich, sacred scripture that there is. And it's in here that we find out what the will of God, the Father, what the will of God that was accomplished in Jesus' death is. Ephesians 1, 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing blessing. Not some spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing. If I could put that in bolds in my Bible, I would. Every spiritual blessing. Verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Listen, here it comes. According to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, 
making known to us, here it is, the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things. What's Paul saying here? He's saying the same thing. God's will is to save. God's will is to redeem. God's will is to adopt. God's will is to bring forgiveness. And Jesus' death is the way that that will becomes realized. Because Jesus has died, we now have that will. What I want you to see is where did that will begin? It began before you and I were even made. It began before creation was even created. God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit made a plan to save you before he even made the world. Isn't that incredible? He chose you. He chose you. He saved you according to the purpose of his will. And in order for his will, his written testament, to become reality, someone needed to die. Jesus needed to die in order that we might inherit his riches, in order that we might inherit his wealth. Now, a lot of times when you write a will and you die, you don't really get to see the person enjoy the things that you've left to them, right? You don't. Why is that not true of Jesus? He's alive. He's alive. He, he willed the riches of the Godhead, all the riches of the Spirit. He willed it to us, and then he died in order that the will might pass to us. And then he rose from the dead so that he could see his riches being shared with us. Is anybody else excited about that? That's kind of cool. Just saying. Yeah, thank you, Lord. Pretty cool. People are doing this now, actually. It's, it's a thing. It's, it's, it's becoming more common for parents to give their inheritance while they're still alive. I think it's really cool because they want to see their kids um, benefit. And so, so it's kind of like what Jesus does. He's like, I'm going to give you this riches, and I'm going to see you enjoy it. Okay? Now, Jesus' death um, not only willed to us his atonement, it also willed to us his perfect life. So Jesus gave you a gift. It wasn't only forgiveness. He gave you his perfect record. One of the things, that, one of the, the rich things he's given you. Jesus' perfect record given to you. That's, that's really good news. Let's keep going. Verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses, now he's going back, he's going back to Exodus 24, track with it. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, I want you to note this, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So here's what he just did for us. Okay, he took us back to Exodus chapter 24, and he said, hey, remember what happened when Moses mediated the old covenant? Here's what he did. And you can go back and you can read it on your own, Exodus 24. Moses took Israel, and he took them to the base of Mount Sinai. He couldn't take them up there because they'd all die. He took them to the base of Mount Sinai, and he set up these 12 pillars, and then he made some sacrifices, and then he mediated the covenant. He told them, these are the rules, this is the promises. And then they returned and they said, all these things we will do, which they didn't, right? You read the Old Testament? They didn't do any of them. 
Israel totally failed, right? But they said, okay, we'll do all that stuff. And then Moses mediated the covenant. And the way that he did it, and this all matters. I know it's like, Tim, why are you talking about this? It all matters. What he did is he took blood. He made a sacrifice. He took blood. He mixed it with, uh, with water to thin it. And he took a hyssop branch. And he flung, he flung the blood all over everything. Some of you guys, this is your first time going to church. You're like, this place is creepy. What is this blood thing? Okay. Can you imagine you're an Israelite? You're in the wilderness. And Moses is like, hey, God wants to covenant with you. Here's the stipulations. Here's the rules. Here's the thing I'm with. And you're all like, okay, cool, we're in. And he's like, great. And then he starts flinging blood all over you. Like, can you imagine? Like, you just wore your brand new white shirt that day. And you're like, what is, what is going on? Moses is flinging blood all over me. It's so weird for our Western modern sensibilities, right? But there's some serious significance to this. Why is Moses doing this? First, first thing we probably should ask is, why blood? What's the deal with blood? Blood's creepy. Blood's weird. What's the deal? Why is blood so central in the Old Testament and the New Testament? Well, the reason is, it actually says it right here in the text, the reason is because blood represents life. It's not that blood has some kind of magical properties. Blood represents life. And so the consequences of sin are death. And the payment for consequences of sin is someone's life. It's called justice. So blood is just signifying the fact that atonement must be made. So Moses is making a sacrifice because the party in which God is making this um, covenant with is sinful. They're, they're, they're not an honest party. They're not a forgiven party. They're not a holy party. They're an unholy party. So Moses makes this sacrifice. But what I want you to see here, what, what I want you to see the point is, is that he puts it on their extremity. He sprinkles them. He covers them on the outside. Okay? And this is the scene that the author of Hebrews here in 9 wants us to see. He wants us to remember it. Why does he want us to remember it? The reason, I think, is because he wants us to see how unaffected it was. The blood was sprinkled. The blood was covering. Did it change Israel? Did it fix Israel? And the answer is no. Why? Because it was external. It was external. Now, I want you to go with me to Matthew 26, verse 26. I swear this is all going somewhere. Matthew 26, verse 26. Remember the, the, the phrase I wanted you to remember in our text? Let me read it for you one more time while you're turning there. Okay, Moses in Exodus 20. Uh, he, 24, he says, this is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. This is the words of Moses when he mediates this covenant. Now, I want you to hear the words of Jesus when he mediates the new covenant. And tell me if there's something familiar here. Matthew 26, 26. Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's in the upper room celebrating Passover with his disciples. And here's what he says. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the, give, for the forgiveness of sins. Question, why didn't Jesus take a hyssop branch? dip it in the wine, and start flinging it on the disciples. Do you, do you see the similarity in the, in the language here? 
Jesus is almost verbatim quoting Moses when he says, take of my blood. This blood mediates a new covenant. Jesus is a Moses figure right now. He's mediating a new covenant. He is, like Moses, he's engaging with these 12 disciples, 11 really, but these 11 disciples who represent and, and mirror the 12 tribes of Israel, and, and he is mediating a new covenant. But why does Jesus tell them to drink the blood? It's not real blood, it's wine. But still, why does he tell them to drink it? And by the way, Leviticus says it's prohibited to drink blood. So why would Jesus even toy around with some kind of a picture saying this wine represents my blood? Why would he say that? Why doesn't he sprinkle it? Why doesn't he cover them? And the answer, guys, it's very simple. It's because Jesus needed to do deeper work than anything on the external. Remember Genesis 3? God made a sacrifice and he covered Adam and Eve externally. But was it enough? See, we don't just need to be covered. We don't just need to be accepted. We don't just need to be forgiven. Listen to me. We need to be born again. We need Jesus' blood flowing through our veins. We need Jesus' life brought in and enmeshed into our life. We need not just Jesus' covering. We need Jesus' life. And Jesus, when he mediates this new covenant... He's trying to get these guys to think back to Exodus. And he's saying, I'm not sprinkling blood on you. Drink my life. My life, Jesus would say, is going to live within you. And it's going to grow out of you. My kingdom is going to come out of you. Are you seeing that? It's incredible. Now go with me one more place to Colossians. I want you to see this. Colossians 1.24. Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice, Paul says, in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, for which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. What's the mystery? To them, God chose, that is the Jews, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of glory of his mystery. I want you to tune in here. What is the mystery? What is the riches of the glory of his mystery? What is it? It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not Christ on you. It's not Christ over you, Christ around you. It's Christ in you. His life brought in and enmeshed with the deepest part of who you are existentially. That's why Jesus said, drink the cup. Drink the cup. You don't just need to be forgiven. You need my life inside of you. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And this is the gospel. This is the good news. So what does the author want us to see? He wants us to see that this sprinkling of blood is insufficient. It's insufficient. I'll keep reading. Verse 23. Go back to Hebrews. Hebrews 9. 23. Keep reading. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as high priests enter the holy place every year with blood not his own, for then he would have, he have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
So the new covenant is this. Not Jesus took you to the base of a mountain where you couldn't go because God's presence was too far up. And if you went in, he'd kill you because you're unholy and he's holy. No, not, not a covenant where, where Moses takes you and he says, hey, if you do all the right things, then you, you, you might be able to be blessed as a nation. No, we have a new covenant and a new mediator. And Jesus takes his guys and he takes us and he says, listen, I'm going to do the work. I'm going to make the blood sacrifice. I'm going to go in and I'm going to atone. I'm going to pay for your sin. And then I'm going to send the spirit of God so that my life can be brought into you. And you will be born again. And the deepest parts of who you are will be fixed. So do you see it now? You see it? You see what he's trying to get at? Hey, sprinkling's not enough. The tabernacle's not enough. You need something better. So you might say, Sam, are you, are you saying that if I just get saved, all my problems are going to go away? Eventually. <laughs> I'm not saying all your problems are going to go away. But I'm saying, I am saying this. I am saying that you will never change what you do until you change who you are. And you will never be able to fix externally what is broken until you let God rebirth what is in you internally. You don't just need external change. You don't just need to lose weight or you need to get healthy or you need to beat cancer or you need to change your gender or you, you need to, to, to get bigger or smaller or, or you need to fix whatever. No, none of that will fix you or me. I need deep, deep change. The only kind of, ch the change that only comes when the Spirit of God comes into you by Christ and you're born again. I need more than covering. Verse 27, now here's where he ends. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Anybody eagerly waiting for Jesus? A couple? Good. Um, the author here is he's, he's, he's distinguishing these two mountains, the two advents of Christ. Okay? The first advent, advent just means arrival. The first advent was when Jesus came and he died for our sins. But that's not the end. There's a second advent of Christ. Christ is coming again. But he says here, he's not coming to deal with sin because sin's already been dealt with. Let me put it this way. The first advent was to remove the sin from the, from the saved. Okay? To remove our sin. The second advent is to remove the saved from sin. He's taken us out of here. He's taken us away. He's not taken us away from created things or from the earth. He's taken the sin out of the picture. No more. It's gone. He's coming back. But he's not coming to deal with sin in us. He's already done that. He's coming and he's coming so that we might inherit this eternal promise. It's exciting. It's good news. And why are we eagerly waiting for him to return? The text tells us because there's nothing for him to judge you for. It's been paid for. As a kid, I remember, like, the best part of my day was when my dad got home, right? Five o'clock, you're just excited. You're excited for your dad to come home. Except for that one day when you did something really wrong. And your mom said those dreaded words, just wait, just wait till I tell your dad. And then you're like dreading the return of the father, right? <clears throat> so what, what's the difference? When there's no condemnation, when there's no guilt, when there's no, when there's no shame, we eagerly expect the coming of the Lord. And that's exactly what he's saying here. He's saying we eagerly expect the coming of the Lord because there's nothing to fear. 
There's nothing but acceptance. There's nothing but love. And there's nothing but internal, eternal inheritance. I, even, I was even more excited when my dad was going to come home and I knew he was bringing us something. My dad used to work for Nabisco, and sometimes he would get all these, like, free cookies. Like, we just had Fig Newtons, like, piles of Fig Newtons. Or sometimes he would bring, like, displays home. Like, he brought this big blow-up Spider-Man home one time. And so when I knew my dad was bringing ho- something home, man, I was just, like, counting down the moments. Guys, this is how Christians should be existing. Jesus is coming. Sin has been dealt with. He's coming again. He's coming with rewards. He's coming with the new heavens and a new earth. There's no condemnation for us. You realize that that reality that I just told you, that is the joy that has been fueling Christians through trouble and tribulation and struggle for 2,000 years. Christians suffer well because we know we are forgiven and we know Christ is coming. It's just, it's just simple. It's just good news. I want you to see something. When Jesus mediated the new covenant, he's up in the, the upper room, he's doing the Passover thing, and he says, this is my blood, this is the new covenant. There's one more thing that he says, and I didn't read it because I wanted to save it for here. He says in verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Isn't it cool that when Jesus mediated the new covenant, he didn't just want them to see the forgiveness. He wanted them to see future. He said, guys, we're going to drink this again in a physical, resurrected existence. We're going to party. We're going to drink this new wine in the new heavens and the new kingdom." Jesus is saying, just wait. And that's all tied together. When we come to the cup, when we come to the table, that's all coming together for us to be reminded. So in conclusion, I just want you to remember that the author here is trying to get these Jewish Christians to stop drifting back to the temple, stop drifting back to things that can only give external change, and he says, keep holding on to Christ. And you might be saying, yeah, what relevance does that have to me? I'm not a Jewish Christian. There's not a big temple next door that I'm tempted to go worship in. How does this apply? The reality is all of us are tempted to drift away from Jesus and to drift to something inferior that can only deal with our external problems. We are. We're all tempted. But the author of Hebrews is just pastoring us this morning and saying, hold on to Jesus. He's the only one that can really fix what you're dealing with. And that has a lot of relevance for us. So, Have confidence in him.